Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garment from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I'll clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head so that they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's pray. Lord God, we just pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. And Lord, as we look at this passage and we and grapple with it and attempt to understand it. We pray that it would not be an intellectual exercise only, but we, we would worship you with our minds, but that by understanding, we would know you better, love you more fully, and we would know how to serve you and obey and how to rejoice and, and celebrate what you have done for us, that this would engage our whole persons. In Jesus' name, amen. And this is part two of, of the fourth night vision. If you remember, Zechariah is, is broken up into three sections. Chapters one to six are the eight night visions. Seven and eight is one question, four answers. And nine through 14 are the two burdens of the word of the Lord. And so as we're making our way through the first section, what we've seen is that Zechariah is sent to the post-exilic remnant of Israel. These are the 50,000 or so Israelites who've returned from Babylon to Judah, Jerusalem, and they've begun rebuilding the temple, rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. They're a meager group. They're discouraged. And God sends them encouragement. And after an initial call to repentance and they respond, the Lord is promising encouraging words. And Zechariah receives eight encouraging prophetic visions from the Lord in a single night, she is to deliver to the people. And so we've gone through them one by one. The first being the vision of the rider on the red horse and the, the scouting mission. Um, depicting God has returned to Jerusalem with favor. He has again chosen Jerusalem and he is angry with the nations. And the, the second vision of the four horns and the craftsmen that God will strike down the nations that have oppressed his people. And the third, the, the vision of the man with the measuring line in chapter two. And the call for the rest of the remnant to return, to flee Babylon, because the Lord would judge Babylon. And now the, the fourth vision, and we looked at this last week, is the vision of Joshua the high priest standing before God's court with the 
angel of the Lord at his right hand and the accuser at his left. And last week we looked at the first five verses of this passage as it is a remarkable picture of how the gospel works. If you remember, this is, this is working at a number of levels. First and foremost, this, this vision establishes Joshua's credibility as the high priest. There is apparently some question among the Israelites of whether or not there could be a priesthood coming out of Babylon. These are people who were born in Babylon, people tainted by a pagan land, possibly some question about the validity of this man in his office. And, and so this vision of his cleansing, his re-robing, and being given the, the uh, gear, so to speak, of the high priest, affirms him as the high priest. It also reaffirms the legitimacy of the priesthood in general. We're going to see this broaden even here in this passage to the entire priesthood. The, the Levitical priests were legitimate. Their function was legitimate. They would serve again. And they also represent the people. God, we've seen, has chosen and returned again to Israel, his people. And we also understood that by looking on, we see how God does his saving for even us. And it's remarkable. The accuser, the prosecution, we looked at this, the, the prosecutor we expect begins the court trial. He doesn't get to speak. Because for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, for those of us who, who have this advocate, no charge can be brought against God's elect. That's what Paul says. We rejoice. And only after the prosecution is silenced do we learn that the defendant is remarkably guilty. The angel of the Lord takes that upon himself. He says, remove his garments. Give him clean garments. Then he makes this wonderful statement in verse 4. I have taken your iniquity away from you. And if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, then the Lord has spoken that over you. He has taken your iniquity away. He has taken our iniquity away and given us clean clothing, clothing us in himself, garments of salvation. And then remarkably, even again in verse 5, in this vision, Zechariah is so moved by what's taking place that he speaks, he enters in, I likened it last week too. It's almost as though the people in the, the seats in the audience in the courtroom are now standing up and speaking. Zechariah says, give him a turban, a clean turban for his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. The angel of the Lord was standing by. Now that turban is where we're sort of going to pick up is the, the accoutrements, the gear for the priesthood. We looked at this last week, but in Exodus 28, 36 to 38, speaking of this, uh, Moses writes, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engravings of a signet, holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear the guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So it would have been understood that this turban that Zechariah is calling for is the priestly turban, um, again, a clear sign that he has been reinstated. He has been, just as we had a commissioning ceremony for Pastor Daniel, this is a heavenly commissioning ceremony for Joshua the high priest, a, a real and historic person. He's one of two leaders in Israel, and in chapter 4 next week, there'll be a, a divine commissioning, a, a divine affirmation of Zerubbabel as the political leader. Here's the religious leader of Israel being commissioned. And so what we noticed last week was all of this is done to Joshua. He, he doesn't speak either. He's just sort of standing there. 
And by virtue of his place in Christ, the divine advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, does, does, is the actor here. He is the one who silences the accuser. He is the one who orders the dirty garments taken. He is the one who provides clean clothing. And so we, we understand that, that salvation is of the Lord. Now this week, we're going to see some more of this as we look at the servant, the branch, and the stone. And this text is broken up, verses 6 to 10, into two sections. First, there are present promises for the restored priesthood, verses 7 to 8. Present promises for the restored priesthood. And then in verses 9 and 10, future promises of the coming Messiah. And what's striking is, whereas up until this point, Joshua has been acted upon, now these promises that come are conditional. They're conditional. You see that clearly. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So, whereas the salvation is unconditional, and we, and we talk about how there's nothing you can do to compromise your salvation, there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. Um, those who are the Lord's, those chosen by the Lord, cannot be lost. What is now put out in, in, this, in the form of conditions and promises is conditional. And Joshua has been cleansed. There's nothing that can be done about that. Joshua has been chosen. And yet Joshua's um, ability to fulfill his responsibility, to live out his commission, is very dependent on these conditions. And we'll look at the two conditions now, one at a time. The first is to walk in my ways. To walk in my ways, which is a regular Old Testament way of saying personal obedience. Um, li listen to this statement about Abraham in Genesis 17.1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. The concept of walk is conducting your life. Walk in my ways, conduct your life in my ways. This is regular, ongoing, personal holiness. And again, we want to make the distinction. This isn't the cause of his forgiveness. We don't get forgiven because we do things. Joshua wasn't cleansed because he was doing things. It's the result. Because we've been cleansed, because the Lord has, has made us anew, this charge can be made and Joshua can have some hope of keeping it. So walk in my ways is a call for personal obedience. And keep my requirements is a reference to priestly duties. Priestly duties. So what the angel of the Lord, what the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ is charging Joshua with is his own personal holiness and his own faithful fulfilling of his priestly duties. Those are the conditions. Um, in, in many respects, it's the conditions. I'm just still thinking through, still rejoicing over the affirmation of, of Daniel's and elders. It's what God requires of elders and leaders in the church, that they, you go through the requirements, that they have godly lives, godly character, and that they're able to exercise their authority well, not lording it over the congregation, able to teach. There's an emphasis. There's always been an emphasis in the leadership that God establishes in personal holiness and faithfulness in carrying out the commission, and that's seen clearly here. So what are the, what are the promises? Well, there's three of them that he, that he would give him in uh, verse 7. If you'll walk in my ways, keep my charge, then you shall rule my house, have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. And what these three promises amount to is the full reinstatement of his priestly office. 
We'll look at this one at a time. First, rule my house. Really is a reference to settling disputes. The word for rule really could be more accurately translated judge. Function as a judge. Listen to this description in Deuteronomy 17 of the function of the priests. Deuteronomy 17, 8 to 13. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another of kind of legal right and other, or one kind of assault or another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose, and you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who sits in office in those days, and you shall consult them. And they shall declare to you the decision. And then you shall do according to what they declare to you um, from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you. According to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left, the man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So the, the priesthood was given this task of settling disputes. And here, the angel of the Lord is saying, Joshua, if you will be personally holy and faithful, and if you will be faithful in, in endeavoring to do your duties, then you will indeed fulfill this function as a priest. It's nothing more than just promising him the reinstatement, the fulfillment of what he was commissioned to do to begin with. That he would have rule over my house is settle disputes. This is also predicted in Ezekiel. There's, there's these prophetic threads that we're going to see running through this that God sent Ezekiel, and Ezekiel was one of the more recent prophets. If you think of the, the ordering of Israel's history, um, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah are contemporaries, and they're, they're prophets functioning as Israel is taken into captivity and while they're in captivity. And having just returned from captivity, they're the most recent prophets save Haggai. And Ezekiel, towards the end of the book, is promising this, this restored temple and again, that the priest would serve this function. In, in Ezekiel 44, 15 to 16, the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, by the way, Joshua the high priest is a descendant of Zadok. The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to be minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, declares the Lord. And they shall enter my sanctuary. They shall approach my table to minister to me. And they shall keep my charge. And so, this is a fulfillment of these promises. And here we have a Zadokian priest, say that five times fast, promised the fulfillment of the predictions in, in Ezekiel, the fulfillment of the priestly commission in Deuteronomy. That's, that's the first promise. Second, have charge of my courts is control of the temple, that, that they will have the oversight, the jurisdiction, the governance of the temple. And again, this is, this is another one of the priestly functions. They would, they would be in their keeping. It's, it's the priest that, that Jesus is angry with for letting his father's house become a den of thieves. This is given into their charge. And thirdly, right of access. Right of access. Now this is admittedly the trickier one, but what it appears to be is um, the reference here, what's, what's tricky about it is I will give you right of access among those who are standing here. As best as we can understand it, it's a reference to the angels. It's a reference to this, this vision, the angels and angelic beings. And so what I take it to mean is to have access as priests before the Lord. 
who have access as priests before the Lord. I mean, you remember, priests are standing between man and God, and they're coming into God's presence. The high priest, once a year, actually entering the Holy of Holies um, before the very Ark of the Covenant, which at this time is no more. And, and the angel of the Lord is saying, Joshua, if you'll be faithful in your own personal life, and if you'll be faithful with your duties, then we are going to fully, you'll be fully reinstated. And the priesthood will, will once again settle disputes and act as judges in Israel. And once again, they will, they will have governance over the temple itself, and you will be able to regularly come before the Lord God as a priest. It's a full reinstatement. These three promises, conditional promises, clearly implying that if the priesthood again becomes corrupt, if the priesthood again gets defiled, they may lose these rights as they now have. When the Messiah comes 400 years later, the priesthood did not keep this charge. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and the function of the priesthood ended as a Melchizedekian priest, our savior ascended into his priesthood. But for now, Joshua is commissioned to be faithful and, and he was. So that's the present promises to restored priesthood. And this is said so that all Israel can know that these priests are, are valid in their function. And, and Zechariah goes back to the people. They know this, this is the man the Lord has chosen. This is a man the Lord has cleansed. This is a man and his priesthood is a priesthood that has been um, vindicated and appointed by God. But now let's move on to future promises of the coming Messiah. And I want you to notice that what's said next is not conditional. Verses 7 and 8, conditional. 9 and 10, unconditional. The promises of the coming Messiah are completely unconditional. This is what the Lord God will do, period, full stop. Regardless of his people's faithfulness, regardless of his people's actions, he will accomplish his purposes of his Messiah. Let's read that, verses um, 8, 9, and 10. Sorry, 8, 9, and 10. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And so what we're looking at here is a messianic prophecy. A messianic prophecy. Future promises of the coming Messiah. And first, we're going to look at it in, in four points. First, this tricky bit about the sign of the coming Messiah. The sign of the coming Messiah. And Admittedly, the second half of the passage is the trickier bit. Hear now, O Joshua, verse 8, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Well, that's odd. First of all, what men? Now we're just introduced to them, and they're a sign. Well, at this point, apparently, in the vision, it's broadened to include the priesthood, these, these fellow priests of Joshua. And that's, that's, I think, assumed by this passage as the angel of the Lord is speaking to Joshua. And what we're getting then is that in some sense, Joshua and the rest of the restored priests are functioning as a sign. They are symbolic. They're pointing to something. And so, okay, what, what, what on earth are they pointing to? This can get tricky. Well, they're pointing to something connected with the Messiah. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. And this is, again, where things can... 
require an understanding of the antecedent prophecies. Zechariah isn't written in a vacuum. God has sent prophets to Israel. Some of the more recent prophets have made predictions. And what we're going to see, and I think here's the sort I'll give you the short answer is this. The short answer of how are these men a sign? By virtue of the Lord God being faithful and plucking out of the fire, as it were, this burning brand and cleaning it off of the priesthood and reestablishing it, it is a sign that he will keep other promises that he made. And in Jeremiah 33, this language of branch gets picked up and it's intertwined with promises to the priesthood. So let's read Jeremiah 33, verses 15 to 22, and I think it might make a little more sense how the angel of the Lord is expecting Zechariah and Israel to understand that this restored, cleansed, reinstituted priesthood functions as a sign pointing to a coming Messiah. So, Zechariah 33, verses 15 to 22. We'll start in verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with day and my covenant with night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. So here's this promise in Jeremiah. There's going to come a day. There's going to come a day. I'm going to send the branch. The branch is, is clearly a Davidic king. This is, this is how we know that the one spoken of a little later in Zechariah is the Messiah. And this promise of, of surety, you can be sure, day is coming, I will send him, and, and Judah will be saved, and he will rule in righteousness, is intertwined with promises to the priesthood, just as David will not lack a man for his throne. I promise you that. The, the Levitical priest will serve before me. And he puts those together and he says, take my word on it. You, it's more likely that the sun will not rise, he says, than that that will be broken. And so if, you, if you've got that in your head, and this is one of the most recent prophets in Israel's history, what, what the Lord is saying back in Zechariah chapter three to, um, to Joshua is that Knowing that that prophecy and that promise is there, when we look upon the restored priesthood, it's a sign that the other half of this promise is going to be kept too. That, that's the point. By virtue of God, through a great saving act, pulling out almost inexplicably these people back to their land, rebuilding a temple, reinstituting the priesthood, then surely that means Messiah branch is coming, the Davidic king. And so the, the meaning then of this sign of the coming Messiah is God is beginning to do this. He's beginning to work this. And the, the first sign of that was the restoration of the priesthood. Secondly, we're to look at the person of the coming Messiah. The person of the coming Messiah. So there's a sign. 
Restored priesthood is an indicator, a sign that God is about to, to do this. Second, he's given three names to the Messiah, and we can learn a fair bit about his person from that. He is the servant, he is the branch, he is the stone. You and your friends who sit before you, verse 8, they are a sign. Behold, I will send my servant the branch. So we're going to look at these one at a time. Now, it may be interesting to note that the the title, the servant, the servant of the Lord, is actually a more common messianic title than Messiah is. It, it shows up all over the place. But you probably are most familiar with it in Isaiah 52, a passage that I'm sure many of you even know by heart, clearly about the Messiah. Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be... Exalted, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And this goes on. This is the suffering servant who bore our iniquities. He was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The servant of the Lord. Clear messianic title, my servant. And what the name shows is that this one, this Messiah, he comes to do the Father's will. And that's the significance of the name, the one who will perfectly carry out the Father's will. And I just want to pause and point, because we know this side of the cross, they just know he's coming, but we know looking back, hey, psst, it's Jesus, right? And this is exactly what Jesus did. Listen to John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own, but as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 17, 4, I have glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus was emphatic. He was here at the behest of his Father. He was here fulfilling as a servant what his Father wanted him to do. And so the Lord is going to send the Messiah, and the Messiah will be he who perfectly carries out God's will. That's, that's what we first learn about him. The second, he's the branch. And we just saw in Jeremiah this reference. And, and the concept is a shoot coming out of, of, in other places, a cut-down tree. The picture is that when, when Israel was taken into captivity, the, the, the dynasty ended, or did it. And then out of this cut-down stump, a shoot, a branch is coming out. And in Jeremiah 33, as well as many other places, the Messiah is spoken of as this branch, this offshoot and here, the point is, he's the kingly descendant of David. The Messiah is a servant. The Messiah will be David's son. He'll be a king. And, and so what these three titles are doing is drawing together biblical themes. Um, that, that's what's coming together. These, these streams of biblical uh, messianic theology, to use the big words, are being drawn together. Now we learn this servant is also the branch who's the kingly descendant of David. And then we get to the probably most confusing title, the stone. The stone, verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And of course, now again, another object's introduced into this vision that we weren't told about before. Just as the camera zoomed out, we saw Joshua wasn't alone. He's with his brethren. Now we zoom out a bit further and there's a stone. And we're not used to seeing stones with eyes, are we? This is probably the oddest part of the prophecy. But I, I think it, it, it can be cleared up if we just take it piece by piece. Now, interpreters can be split on this point. 
It's possible, I will freely admit it's possible, this stone is a reference to the stone that's to be on Aaron's headdress. Um, although it's more likely a placard, as we read in Exodus 38. It's possible, but given the, the drawing on Jeremiah and the, the pre-exilic prophets, I think it's far more likely that this is another reference to the Messiah. And there is plenty of Old Testament antecedent text to reference him as such. Listen to Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious, precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Picking up that theme, Psalm 118, 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we know from the New Testament over and over, this is Christ. Jesus Christ is the, the foundation stone that many an Israelite stumbled over. And he's the foundation stone that will fall and crush those who do not believe. And in Daniel 2, 35, 34 and 35, Daniel identifies this stone also as the one who will come and put an end to the ungodly world rulers. Daniel 2, 34 to 35, Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and all the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And if you go on in Daniel, you understand this is the final ruler who's going to come and set up righteousness. That, that's what I think the reference is to, drawing on those threads from Isaiah and Daniel, that this is to be understood as another messianic title. This title conveying that he is the stone over whom Israel will stumble and who will destroy the nations. This is the coming ruler and king who will put down all rebellion and will bring in everlasting righteousness. Another reason I think that's the case is, as we'll see when we get further along in Zechariah, the, the last five chapters of the book are devoted to that theme, the coming Messiah and the kingdom he sets up. And so it's where we're going in Zechariah, and, and I think it fits. So I, the three titles then of the Messiah and what we learn, he is the servant who does the Father's will. He is the branch, the, the descendant of David who will be king, and he is the stone and the seven eyes can be a play on words. It can be the seven facets. But probably more likely it, it means eyes. If you, if you turn over to chapter 4 of Zechariah, um, seven eyes are mentioned again. And it helps us understand what this uncommon expression might mean. Um, verse of 10 of chapter 4. Whoever despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line and the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And so in short, I think the notion of a stone with seven eyes is a picture of omniscience, a picture of a, being aware. Um, it's just used a chapter later to speak of God's seeing and superintending all things. So let me get to this inscription. What will this stone do? And that gets us to point C, the work of the coming Messiah. The work of the coming Messiah. So we've seen the sign of the coming Messiah, the person of the coming Messiah, now the work of the coming Messiah. 
This, this is a great inscription, isn't it? It's a wonderful inscription. I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. That's just a remarkable promise. I want you to contrast that. He's just spoken to the Levitical priests. Priests who need to offer sacrifices again and again and again and again and again and again. I mean, the the temple was a bloody place. Every day, the, the, the sound of animals dying blood dripping, a constant sacrifice, a constant upkeep just, just, just to get another day before another sacrifice needs to be made. And he's just reinstated these priests who will be performing this function and then promises, speaking of a coming Messiah, when sin will be removed in a single day. It's absolutely remarkable. And what we're talking about here is a once and for all atonement. A once and for all atonement. I said last week that the angel of the Lord takes upon himself the responsibility for for providing clean clothing for Joshua. He doesn't tell us how he deals with the legal problems. He just takes the responsibility himself. If he's going to silence the accuser, then it's on him to take his guilty defendant and make his guilty defendant innocent, which he does. And now we get some more insight into how that's done. The iniquity will be taken from the land in a single day. The once and for all atonement. Now, this reference to a single day, I do not believe, is the day of the cross. I don't, I don't believe that's what it's talking about. And the reason for that is, is a continued reference to that day in verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Rather, I, I believe that this single day is the day that the benefits of the cross are applied to Israel. So, not the day of the cross itself, but the day when the benefits of the cross are applied to Israel. It's the day when Israel is redeemed and forgiven, the day that has not yet happened. Turn, turn over to, to Zechariah chapter 12. And I think we'll see some confirmation for this understanding. The last few chapters of Zechariah really are focusing on this day. You see that in chapter 12, verse 3. On that day, verse 4. On that day, verse 6. On that day, verse 8. On that day, verse 9. On that day. You get you getting the point? We're talking about a very special day here. Verse 10. On that day. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning in Hadad Ramon, in the plain of Megiddo. I think that's the day we're talking about, the day when God pours out his spirit on Israel, when Israel corporately gets it. They realize what they've done to their Messiah, the day when the benefits of the cross are applied to them. So it is absolutely biblically true that in a single day, the Lord atoned for iniquity. Rather, in three hours on a single day, the Lord atoned for iniquity. But what's being promised here, back in chapter 3, is that the iniquity of the land, the land of Israel, will be dealt with and removed 
in a single day, yet future. The once for all atonement of the Messiah will be applied to Israel in a single day. And we'll get to that in a few months in chapter 12. Great passage. Finally, we're to look at the results. The results of the coming Messiah. We've seen the sign of the Messiah, the person of the Messiah, the work of the Messiah, the results. We've already seen some of it. The, the iniquity, the sin, atoned for, removed. The result that God can justify guilty sinners, that priests with dirty clothes can be cleansed. And in this last verse, we see some more of the results. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Which I'm guessing is, is probably a little bit obscure for most of us. But this again is a Hebrew saying, speaking of national peace and security and national prosperity. Listen to 1 Kings 4.25. This is what typified Solomon's reign, the height of Israel's prosperity. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. And the picture is this. It's only when you have security and peace and you're not being drafted into the army. And it's only when you have the prosperity that you have abundance can you take the siesta. Can you just take a nice afternoon rest under your vine? When there's threat of war or when food is scarce, you're too busy working. Um, and so what this is a promise is of coming time when Messiah comes, and again, we'll get there in Zechariah, when they will trust, turn, repent, believe in their Messiah, and the messianic kingdom blessings will pour out. And it'll be typified by peace and rest, true shalom, which is that well-being and security and rest, the ability to, to rest from one's work. They're going to sit under their vine and under their fig tree and invite their neighbor. Um, maybe, maybe an illustration might be of, of what this is a promise of is, is you think of people who are tired and weary, maybe soldiers um, off at boot camp. And they're just thinking of when they get home and they get to sit back in the backyard under the umbrella with a tall glass of lemonade and relax. You can imagine how refreshing and encouraging that would be. Um, I, think, I think our own Josh Braun might be, might be looking for something like that. He's, he's in training right now in, in California. Matthew, Josh. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Our own Matthew Braun. Um, that, that's the promise. This is, this, it's hearkening back to the glory and the prosperity of Solomon's reign. It's also a, a promise picked up um, of, of messianic times in Micah 4.4. 4. Speaking of these days, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So this is a picture of peace, security, rest, fullness, and prosperity. And, and that's what's coming. That's what's coming for Israel. That's what's coming in this book. If you jump with me just to the last chapter, we'll close here, chapter 14. Where this book ends is with King, Branch, Stone, Messiah touching down on planet Earth. Absolutely, it's where it ends. That's where this, this we're headed. After Israel receives their Messiah by faith in chapter 12, verse 14. Chapter 14, sorry, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil shall be taken 
from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped, and half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Touchdown point for returning Lord Jesus Christ, Mount of Olives. Exactly where he ascended into heaven from over two, nearly 2,000 years ago. And what happens when he returns? He fights the nations and, and verse 6, well, we're going to pick it up in verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, yeah, we're still talking about that day, the Lord will be one and his name one and the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel to the king's winepress and it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And then he goes on to describe this kingdom that's set up. So, so where this book ends, where we're headed, is the, the return of the divine Messiah to fight the enemies of the Lord, to, to vindicate his people, and to establish a kingdom, a worldwide kingdom of righteousness and blessing and security, typified by the Israel will not be afraid. Israel will not be desolate. Israel will, will be secure. Each one of their sons and daughters will sit under their fig tree inviting their neighbor. That's the type of place they're, they're heading. And so the promise here to, to sort of summarize to Joshua is this. Presently, the priesthood has been restored. Presently, Joshua has been redeemed and forgiven. His priests have been cleansed. They're legitimate to serve and to function before the Lord. That's the message to Israel. But more importantly, God's ability to seemingly snatch this brand out from the fire is an indication that he is going to keep his promises that he made, particularly promises in Jeremiah, promises that David's throne will never lack a man. The logic being, ah, he's, he's saved and redeemed the priesthood. Now, that must mean he's getting ready to redeem the crown. And sure enough, 400 years later, he would send his son, the Messiah, the branch, the stone, the servant. And he didn't come as they expected. He came humbly and lowly. The, the servant aspect, probably more highly um, highlighted than any other aspect. But we know from the Bible, and we will learn from Zechariah, he's coming again. He's coming as that stone that will fall and crush and destroy all the enemies of God. And so... I just want to close by reminding us that there's such a great salvation offered here. We, we see it. We get to look on. We get to see it applied. How, how a guilty person can be forgiven. The accuser doesn't even get to speak. Doesn't have to do anything. We don't have to do anything. But the Messiah is coming back. The stone will drop. His foot will touch down on planet earth. And he will fight the enemies of God. And, and that's how we were all born. God's enemies. And so as we close in prayer, I just want to encourage you that if, if you want to know how you can be forgiven, if you want to know how you can have your sins washed away white as snow, talk to me, talk to one of the elders, look to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we just rejoice in the hope 
And you have the promise of your word that your son will return. And all the evil in the world, the evil that we see in the news, the evil going on in the Middle East, the evil going on in our own country as, as infants are slaughtered wholesale every day, all the evil around us, even our own evil, will be put to an end. And, and righteousness will reign and justice will happen and it will be seen to be done. And Lord God, we just rejoice in how you have saved us. We rejoice in the righteousness that you have provided for us, the cleansing that you have given us. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to live holy lives, that we would be faithful to fulfill the responsibility and the charge that you have given us so that we would honor you and that your will would be done in us on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord God, we, we just look with great hope, with great joy, with great excitement to the return of your son and, and all the things you will do for the glory of your name when he comes. And until then, we just pray that you would cause us to be faithful. You would cause us not to lose sight of what really matters. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>